Our Father, you are our Father. And so often we forget it. And so weakly we perceive your goodness to us, your love, the future you've laid out for us. We are so badly in need of understanding what you've done for us and founding our lives upon it. Please give us such a vision this morning of your incredible mercy to us that we might be utterly transformed, rejoicing in your great love for your children. Please uh, work through my words and by your spirit lay them on every heart in this room that you might cause some to come into this relationship of children of God this morning and for others transform our understanding of ourselves. Our Father, we need you to work or we are lost. Please uh, be powerfully at work amongst us this morning we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. You'll find out where we're going on the, uh, on the insert, the sort of batter insert that you normally have. I'll explain why that is the case as we go through this morning. Uh, one of the things I uh, think is best about living in London is at West End Theatre. I don't know if you're a theatre person. I love the theatre. I thought War Horse was absolutely fantastic. Uh, we cried. It was just brilliant. My favourite show is Les Mis. I don't know if you've been to see it. Uh, you'll know the film if you haven't seen uh, the stage production. That's true, I cried, Mim didn't cry, she's got a, a stony heart, uh, and I'm uh, the, the, the compassionate emotional one in our family. Uh, you'll know the story of uh, Les Mis, I think, the main character is called Jean Valjean, and he's in prison, he's been in prison for 19 years, and he's released, uh, and he's a free man, except he's not a free man, because everywhere he goes, he has a piece of paper and a tattoo that screams criminal to everybody who meets him. Uh, there's no such thing as an ex-con, you see, in the eyes of the world. After struggling to go straight, uh, Valjean recognises that he can only survive by going back to, to theft, and so he, he, he goes back. You see, he cannot escape his identity, his self-understanding. So far as the world is concerned, he's a criminal. That's what defines him, that's who he is. Some of you might have seen uh, Matt Fuller's uh, new book. Matt's uh, one of the pastors of another commission church in Mayfair. His book is called Perfect Sinners. Uh, the perfect bit is, is justification. We looked at that uh, a few weeks ago. Perfected in God's sight. And yet, by definition, we're still sinners. Fundamentally, that is who we are. Or at least who we think we are. And so like Valjean... It becomes a shackle to tie us down. We're at liberty, and yet we're not at liberty. Free, and yet never free. Uh, we, we find our identity in uh, this, uh, this tag, sinners. How many times have we used that as an excuse for falling into sin? After all, we're, we're all sinners, aren't we? And so we explain away our bad behaviour. As Christians, there is a danger that we call ourselves sinners, that that's who we think we are. Not that we like to think of ourselves like that. Uh, perhaps you're sitting here with somebody who's not yet a Christian, and you think, that's definitely not how I see myself. As a culture, we've abandoned uh, notions of uh, culpability before an all-seeing God. Insofar as we retain any sense of, uh, of morality defining us, it's always relativistic, isn't it? 
I'm not a bad person, I've never killed anyone. And so we find our identity in being good, moral, upstanding people, so far as it matters. But as a culture, we prefer to build our identity rather than, not on our character, but on what we do. So we idolise famous people for being famous, whether they've got uh, good character or, or questionable characters. We ask strangers, don't we? The first thing almost we say to them is, what do you do? As though finding out what their job is will tell us who they are. And of course, in just the last few years, it's become common to, to have a completely plastic identity. I can become whatever I want by a sheer act of my own will, which is why Facebook now gives you 76 options for your gender. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be a different species if that's what tickles you. What is your identity? How do you build it? How do you construct it? What do you think you are? Well, our passage this morning is about identity as a thing given to us. Totally secure, not relying on performance, and not mouldable into uh, the image that we want to construct either. Rather, it's uh, an identity that moulds us. I'm going to focus on this issue of uh, thinking of ourselves as sinners because I think as Christians, and the majority of us in the room are Christians, the danger is that this becomes our, our core identity in the way we talk to each other. And I want us to, to destroy that this morning completely. Of course, it applies more widely into other identity issues. I've, I've flagged a few of those things, and it will apply there as well. And perhaps for you, that's, uh, that's a more specific issue uh, where you can uh, do some thinking about that later. It just struck me as Andy was uh, talking about uh, life stories, uh, telling our story to our friends. We often think we have nothing to say, do we? Because if we think of ourselves as sinners, what are you going to say to your friends? I've become a Christian and just feel guilty all the time. It's great. If that's what we've got to say, we don't feel we've got anything to, to offer. We need to hear uh, what I think Victor Hugo saw in the Gospel when he wrote Les Mis. Early in the play, Valjean is given a weight of, uh, of silver uh, things, candlesticks and so on, by a bishop character who stands in for Jesus in the, in the story. And he says, I have bought your soul for God. Go and be a new person. Be a different person to the one you were before. No longer a sinner, no longer a criminal, uh, but free to be a different person. That's true in the play, and it's true for us if we're Christians this morning. Let me recap. Uh, We're returning to a series that we began a few weeks ago. We had a little break over Easter. So let me uh, recap where we've got to. We began by recognising that we are actually sinners in our natural selves, in our natural habitat. We are sinful and sinners by identity. But we also saw right at the beginning of our series that where God is intending to take us is to his eternal glory in the new creation, where we will be utterly sinless. So the trajectory of of the salvation story, our redemption, is from uh, sinners to glory. That's the aim. We've seen that uh, we've been saved by Jesus. God chose to save us. 
He saw us, he, he called us through the preaching of the gospel and brought us to new birth. Jesus gave, the Spirit, the Spirit comes and gives us new hearts so we can respond to the gospel. And our response to the gospel is repenting and believing. You'll know that uh, Mark 1.15, Jesus' first words in the first gospel, repent and believe the good news. Uh, that is, uh, repent means to turn away from our life of sin and to put our trust in Jesus means to follow him. It means a change of life. We were sinners, we've repented from sin, we're now following Jesus towards the new creation. And we saw a few weeks ago, didn't we, that this act of trusting Jesus is completely transformative. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, and for some of you it might be today, I hope it is, we become spiritually bound to Jesus. The language in the New Testament is, is we are in him and he is in us. We are totally intermixed with Jesus. Inseparable. It's what we call faith union. And it's from this faith union that all the blessings of the Christian life flow. Uh, we saw, didn't we, at uh, the last uh, talk in this series, uh, was on, on our justification, which was the first thing that flows out of our, our union with Christ. That took us to the courtroom of God, didn't it? And in the courtroom, we're accused by the devil of being sinners. Uh, and we're guilty, completely guilty. Uh, we've uh, treated God as if he's not God. We've treated created things as if they are God's. We're guilty of misusing the creation and misusing God. And yet God, who sits in the, the judge's chair, declares us to be perfect in his sight, justified, righteous. We're treated not only as if we're guiltless, but as if we have always obeyed everything God has called us to perfectly. We're so intermixed with Jesus that his perfect life is counted to our account and our sinful life is credited to him and he is punished in our place. That's our justification. So it's true. We remain sinful people inclined towards sin and yet we're perfect in God's sight. That's Matt's title, the perfect sinners. There's no doubt that we continue to be tempted to sin and we continue to fall into sin as Christians. It's true for me, it's true for you. And it will be till the day Jesus returns, or we're called home. And we'll think more next week about our relationship to sin going forwards, as we think about being sanctified, growing in godliness. But notice with our justification, we have a new relationship to the law. We're no longer condemned by it, we are free people. The law has done its job, Jesus has been punished, we are set free we have Valjean's liberty. And God has saved us from the consequence of our sin, that is his final judgment, so that we can be free to enter his new creation where there will be no more sin. Big part of the journey. But we're not there yet. We continue to sin. And so we often say to one another, we are sinners. Our identity is that we, we're not perfect. We're prone to stuffing it up. And that is a misuse of language, friends. Because what we're saying is the definition of who we are essentially at the core of our being is we're sinners. And that's not right. It is not right. And I want you to stop using that language. 
And I never want to catch you saying these things again. What is your identity? What are you going to say to your friends at these suppers and coffee mornings and bike rides? Let me split hairs for a moment. Uh, if you know me well, you'll know that I like to do this. There is a difference between being sinful and being sinners in the way the Bible uses language. To be sinful is to be somebody who is prone to sin, sometimes falling into sin. To be a sinner is to say, that is who I am at the core of my being. Do you see the difference? Okay. I can say I play football, but I'm not a footballer. Do you see the difference? I'm not a professional. I can't really play football at all, but you understand the difference. Kicking a ball with my kids in the park is not the same as being paid a million pounds a week to play for Manchester United. And so it is for us as Christians. If we use the language of sinner rather than sinful, we are telling a lie about ourselves. We're denying the gospel. And it's a lie that sucks us back into our old way of life. It's just who I am. I can't get away from it. Like Valjean, we struggle to escape our past because our minds are captive to thinking, this is who I really am. And friends, that's not how the Bible describes us. It isn't how God thinks of you if you're a Christian this morning. And we should stop thinking about ourselves and each other in those terms. I really only have one thing to say to us this morning, and you've heard it already in our songs, and Andy's already drawn attention to it. We are children of the living God. That's the thing I want to press in on you from various angles, but it's one simple point. Every Christian is an adopted child of God. And so if you're a Christian, that is, if you're trusting in Jesus, then you are his son or daughter this morning. That is who you are at the essence of your being. So let's take a look at at John chapter 1 to to see that. I really want to focus on verse 12. Take a look at verse 12 with me, if you would do. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is. Right there you go. Children of God. Uh, justification <coughs> takes us into the courtroom of God and says, you are free. Adoption takes us into the living room of God and says, you are children. Do you see the difference? And notice, uh, verse 12, we have the right to be children of God. We're quite big into rights, aren't we, as a culture? Human rights, uh, my freedoms, my liberties. We have a right, a protected right, to call ourselves children of God. Loved, treasured, protected children of God. Notice how we don't become children of God. Verse 13 tells us it's not by natural means. Uh, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. We're not considered to be God's children because of our lineage. You might come from a line of Christians that goes back to the ark, but that doesn't make you a child of God. In fact, it has nothing to do with your natural birth, where you're from, but the new birth. That's regeneration language. We saw just a couple of uh, talks back in this series. Uh, God delighted to give you the new birth and with it the title 
child of God. It's not by nature, and it's not, verse 11, by our religious heritage or performance. Take a look at verse 11, would you? He came to that which was his own. That is to say, he came to his own. Jesus came to the people of God, the people of the covenants, the people of the promise, the people of the Bible, and they did not receive him. They rejected him. They crucified him. Being Jewish... Having the Bible wasn't enough. That doesn't qualify you to be a child of God. You need to do one thing. What does he say? You need to receive Jesus. So we need to be really clear. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Back to verse 12 again, would you? And John is very helpful here. To all who did receive him, that is, let me explain, to those who believed in his name. Okay? If you believe in Jesus and all that his name implies, that is, Jesus as your saviour and Lord Jesus, the son of God, if you want more clarity on that, the whole of John's gospel is written to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing have life in his name. That's the whole book summarised here at the beginning. If you believe those things to be true and you stake your life on them, that Jesus is your saviour and Lord, then you are a child of God. You have a right to it that cannot be taken away. Do you see what these three verses tell us is faith in Jesus plus the new birth, which enables us to have faith, make us children of God, every one of us. Do you see how this is more than our justification? Justification is a, is a, is a big deal. The whole Reformation has fought over it, among other things. Justification clears our accounts with God, allows us to walk away without the hounds of hell chasing us down. Justification allows us to walk away, but adoption brings us into the family. It draws us into close fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It makes us part of their family. This is who we are, essentially. If you were to dissect a Christian running through the middle of us, like, like words through a stick of rock, are child of God. It is what constitutes our being. Of course, we look forward to the new creation, don't we, for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, eternity, blissful happiness, no more tears, suffering, death. The end of sin, that'll be great, won't it? No more temptations, endless glory, each day being better than the last as we get to know Jesus for all eternity. But one thing will not be better there than it is here. One thing here cannot be improved upon. You will never be more a child of God than you are right now if you're a Christian. Of course, we'll know it more fully then. We'll be able to look Jesus face to face and, and, and walk with him in the palace of the king. Our experience of it will be better, but we will never be more children of God than we are right now. That's adoption. God takes people who are naturally sinners and makes them his children. Takes the enemy who is far off and brings them right into his heart, into the midst of his family, changing our identity. Notice verse 12 that this is given he gave the right to become children this is 
It's not earned. It's not a thing you can get by being a better person. It's a gift, an act of grace. God has lifted you out of the depths of the pit and seated you on a throne with King Jesus, crowned you with glory. That's why Jesus tells his disciples later in John's Gospel that he goes to prepare a place for them and for us by extension. That is, a seat, a room in the palace with our name carved in the door, a seat at the king's table, princes and princesses in the kingdom of our gods. That is the glory of God in saving grace writ large, isn't it? So I think this week how to, how to illustrate this, and it struck me, um, Meghan Markle's a great illustration of this, okay? Uh, she's a, a US citizen, doesn't have a British passport yet, has no right to use the NHS, although I don't think the royals ever go near the NHS today. But on the 19th of May, she will have an official relationship with the Queen, won't she? She'll, uh, she's currently a foreigner, but on that day she'll become a royal. She'll be HRH, she'll be a princess or a duchess or whatever it is that the Queen decides to make her. Probably all of those things together, because why not? But you see, she'll be family at that point. She'll be at Balmoral for, for Christmas. She'll have a new privileged access to uh, the other royal family. She'll have a new identity. Well, that is what our adoption has done for us. By faith, we have Jesus as our older brother and God as our father. Of course, there are differences, aren't there? And the illustrations always break down once you poke them too, a little bit too much. The Queen might not like Meghan, for example. I mean, officially, she gives her approval, but she's Harry's choice, not the Queen's choice. Well, that's not the case with our adoption. If you've been in our home groups, you'll know Ephesians chapter 1. In love, God predestined us for adoption, chose us before we chose him, decided to make us members of his family because he loved us, because he loved us, because he loved us. We haven't gate-crashed the party we're not like one of those people who suddenly get, gets an invite through the post to the wedding and thinks, I have no idea, just you know, random lottery win. This is being part of the family because we're wanted. Lifted up into God's family by the loving hands of a saviour. Make no mistake, justification is a glorious truth, but it can leave us rather cold, can't it? It's legal, it's clinical. But adoption is something that we can grasp, isn't it? Think of the small, helpless child, unwanted by the world, but utterly precious to their new parents. Loved, cherished, heirs of every good thing that that family has to give. And of course our family owns heaven and earth. It's not a small thing, is it? We might look at Meghan Markle and think, uh, what, a, what a lucky girl she is. Depends how you look at it, I suppose. But she's got nothing on us. So what does it mean, therefore, for us to have God as our Father? 
I guess some of us here will have had terrible experiences of our earthly families and all of our parents were sinful to some extent. And so how is this family different? Why is it that we should want to be part of this family? Jesus does an interesting parable, doesn't he, uh, about our earthly fathers and our heavenly father. You know the story? Uh, Jesus says, uh, you earthly fathers are evil compared to God. But even you, if your children came to you and said, I'd love something to eat, wouldn't give them a snake. If they asked for bread, you wouldn't give them a stone, which would crack their teeth uh, and cause all sorts of damage. He says, if you earthly fathers know how to do good things for your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to love and care for his children? Not only knows how, but he is infinitely powerful to do the good things for us that he wants to do. What a privilege. Romans 8.15 tells us that uh, the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's not natural to us, is it, to talk to God as if he's our Father. To say, Daddy. And so God gives us his Holy Spirit says, I'm going to help you to relate to me the way you should do. God loves it when we pray, longs to hear our prayers, and longs to answer them in the best possible way. We have a privileged access. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines the ones he loves. He won't let us stray from the family likeness without coming after us. He wants us to look like we belong to his family, not just to have our adoption, but to live it out, for it to transform us. And he'll discipline us if we start to stray. Sometimes that'll hurt. The writer of the Hebrew says, nobody likes it when their dads discipline them. But afterwards, they see the fruit of righteousness and they say, it was a good thing that my parents disciplined me. So it is with our Heavenly Father. He loves us, he protects us, he pulls out every good thing for us, and he will discipline us when we stray, to keep us on the path that takes us into the new creation. Now, I don't say more about that particularly, because next week we'll get to our ongoing relationship with sin. Uh, do come back for that. But I do want to, uh, to tee that up a little bit by looking at one way that the New Testament applies this doctrine for us. That is uh, your final point. Live as God's beloved children. If you want the big take home from this, is uh, grasp your new identity and then live it. God treats us differently because we are different. If we could embrace our status, internalise it, recognise that it is the core of our being, it would change us utterly. Just think again of, of Miss Markle. Uh, she, she's not used to being treated as a royal yet, is she? I mean, she gets a bit of that from the press, but uh, probably around the palaces, she doesn't get treated as ro royalty just yet. But as she gets used to that idea, she will change. She'll have training, won't she, constantly behind the scenes, know how to stand, how to eat with a knife and fork properly, all of that sort of thing. So that over time she will seem to be a royal. Not at first perhaps, but ten years down the road you'll look at her and think, she doesn't look any different to any other royal, member of the royal family. She's just got it nailed. And so it is with us. Church is our training ground. The word of God is our instruction. The Spirit is our teacher. As we let go of whatever our old identity is, as sinners, 
or, or as, as bankers or teachers or, or whatever it is you construct as your core identity, as we let go of that and grasp this, that you are a child of God and it becomes the core of who you are, so we're liberated to live as though it were true. What's it going to look like? The big thing I think that the New Testament says is this. We will treat each other as siblings. If you were here for Philemon just a couple of weeks ago, that's the big te- teaching point, isn't it? Now please do go back and listen to that talk. It's on our website. Let me show you one place where I think this link is made explicit. Please turn to page 1176. Uh, again, we're going to get to this in our small groups. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And Paul says, uh, page 1176, the big five on the left-hand column there. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. There you are. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul says, you're dearly loved children. Loved to the point where God sent his only true son into the world to die for you. To justify you and to bring you into his family. How loved are you? Look at the cross. It's the definition of love. That the son of God would die for those who were his enemies to make them his family. It's extraordinary. That's the measure of love that has been poured out to us and... Paul says, follow God's example. Love others the way you've been loved. And I guess, love the things that God loves. And since God dearly loves his church, all of his children, we should dearly love each other. Being part of his family means being part of each other's family. Brothers and sisters, you are royalty children of the king we are to be light as he is in the light that's who you are now of course it's easy for me to say this now and you're nodding and going yeah I I agree with this of course you'll have forgotten it by the time you've got your coffee after the service because it's so unnatural for us to think this way isn't it it's so hard for us to keep hold of it because we so often think of ourselves in other terms so how are we going to remember this well, let me give you a few things that I, I've have occurred to me. You can think of a dozen more uh, by lunchtime. I don't want anybody to leave the service today until you've told somebody else you are a child of God. Just encourage each other. Let's get into the habit of making this the foundation of all of our ministry amongst each other. You're a dearly loved child of God. Do you know that? Will you remember it? How are you going to remember it? Here's one way. Uh, Why not make it your ambition this week to look up every reference you can find in the Bible about your adoption as children? I've given you a head start. In the middle of your service sheet, there's a little thing called adoption and some Bible verses there, okay? Uh, Why not uh, put that in your pocket, in your handbag if you have one, uh, in your Bible? Whatever it is you look at most frequently, just, just have that with you and just... Make sure every day this week you just have a look down at some of the verses. Why not get your Bible out when you get home and just highlight all of those verses? Nice bright colours, you know, highlighter pens. Nobody's going to hell for putting highlighter in their Bibles. I think God's quite happy for you to want to remember things in the Bible. It's fine. Okay? So highlight those verses. 
So every time you're reading through the Bible and you see adoption, you go, oh yes, I remember. I'm a child of God. Isn't that precious? Change your screensaver on your computer at work so that it reminds you with one of these verses. Just keeps flashing up. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. So that it's just constantly going in because, friends, it is so hard for us to remember when, when we're being convicted of sin and when the world is saying, build your identity on something else. Our own identity as sinners is so ingrained, we have to change the way we think or we will not live it out. So when you're thinking about the life story you're going to tell your friends, and you're, you're trying to think, how am I going to construct my five-minute testimony? Can I encourage you to say, the thing that I want you to get is I'm a child of the living God. That is my privilege. That is my status. That is what I will be for eternity. And it is a wonderful, glorious doctrine. Shall we pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, how we rejoice that you've made us your children. And I do pray for those who might be here who, who don't yet know that privilege. Please uh, help them to see what a good thing it is to have a loving Heavenly Father for all eternity, protecting, cherishing us. To be brought into that family is an extraordinary privilege. We uh, want to pray that you'd bring more people to, uh, to know it. I pray for every one of us that we would know it better this week, that you would uh, cause us to internalise this, uh, lay these verses on our hearts, that we would know how to react in every situation as your children, free from condemnation, uh, free to own our relationship with you. Uh, Lord, please would you just stir us up to love who we are, to love each other as brothers and sisters. Uh, transform us, we pray, by the grace of the gospel.